Hello, welcome to Tales from the Albright, a podcast by the Scranton Public Library. Hello, everyone. Today we are here with Jenny to talk about speakeasies in Scranton. So this came about because we found a vertical file folder that has a map of where all of the speakeasies were in 1932. And also, I thought it would be interesting to take a look about how Prohibition affected the area, since Anne and I did the three-part episodes on the documentary of Prohibition. I'm so excited. Prohibition went into effect on January 17th of 1920, but the difficulty was enforcing it. And that's where the problem started popping up. I'm just going to go through how the Scranton papers tended to describe everything. Or, or the problem was brewing. Problems are brewing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> In 1920, one of the first articles I found featuring the enforcement of prohibition was on May 4th of 1920, when Mayor Alex Connell ordered Ezra Ripple, who was at that time the director of public safety, to close down any saloon doing business without a permit. Those who were found without a license would face charges. There was a push made by Ripple to get an ordinance in place that would allow city policemen to enforce the Prohibition Amendment. It would make Venus, Spiritus, Malt, and Brewed Liquors illegal to sell and subject to confiscation if found. Bathtub gin. Yes. So this is, um, I'm going to read a couple articles during these two episodes. And this is the first one. Okay. And it's the first time that I saw them actually discarding any alcohol. So it is titled, Real Whiskey is Poured into the Sewer. And it was published in the Scranton Republican on June 29th of 1920. With only soft music and flowers missing to complete the effect, one of the saddest scenes city officials have witnessed in years was enacted at City Hall yesterday afternoon, when 30 gallons of real honest-to-goodness whiskey was ruthlessly poured into a sewer (laughs) by police officers, while firemen and others stood around. Okay, sorry. Superintendent of Police, Lona B. Day, acted as funeral director as 120 quarts of real liquor was dumped into the basin. Captain Arnold Roth, Captain of Detectives, Sylvanus F. Savitz, and Patrolman Ray Jeffers and Jack McCloskey served as pallbearers. Pallbearers? This is a funeral for the whiskey. And the only consolation the mourners in chief got was the privilege of standing around and sniffing. Sniffing! <laughs> this was actually written like rum? Yes. Like, what? Yes. Oh the sniffs were almost strong enough the to sniffs. furnish a stagger. The whiskey was the contents of six cans, which were found in two trunks confiscated by police, when Louis Labowitz of 355 Main Street Taylor and Michael Levine of Syracuse, New York, were arrested in the 900 block of South Main Avenue on June 5th by Lieutenant Harry Davis and Sergeant Louis Roberts of the West Granton Precinct. On a basis of $20 a gallon, the loss meant about $600, but the liquor was unfit for use as the result of being stored in tin containers, oh. which bore the labels Excelsior Motor Oils. Stop it. It has been <laughs> held in the ballot box room at City Hall ever since. <gasps> a few days ago, after the alleged bootleggers 
had been called for a sentence, Assistant United States District Attorney Jesse Sickler petitioned Judge C.B. Whitmer in federal court for permission to dispose of the whiskey, and the jurist ruled that it would be destroyed. To Chief J. went the choice of the means of destruction, and the chief decided upon the sewer route. It was the first time in the history of the local police that whiskey has ever been destroyed in this manner. Although in the past years, beer confiscated in raids on speakeasies has been given similar treatment. The police still have suitcases, traveling bags, trunks, and other containers carrying liquor at City Hall, but no disposition of it has been directed. Wow. <laughs> that is a riveting tale. Oh. <laughs> yep. The sniffs. That, that really yeah. set me over. The, wow. Wow. That... That really sets the stage. Yeah. Okay. And it's one of the most dramatic articles that I found. Yeah. Um, the other ones that are good that will come later on in the next episode are all accounts of raids on speakeasies. Okay. But nothing tops this. This is... Not in terms of... Drama. No, there are some dramatic ones. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. Well, continue on with the more, like, serious-ish... Okay, fine. Yeah. I'll allow it. Throughout the rest of the year, raids on businesses continued, and they were reported in papers. In an article from April 16, 1921, titled, Hold Alleged Speakeasy Proprietor for Court, it discusses tactics often used by the police to catch people selling alcohol. Mm. And this is a quote from the paper. Evidence was secured on Friday 12 by Julius Chester and Howard Polhamus, special policeman assigned to the West Stranton precinct. The special officers alleged they called the home of Joseph Izaleski, who was suspected of running a speakeasy, and that they purchased two bottles of beer, three glasses, and a pint of whiskey from his wife. Mm. So they would just go in, order, and if they were served, they just instantly arrested everyone. In March of 1922, an article titled Saloons Wiped Out went through current activities in Scranton and its impact on alcohol sales in the region. The article stated that after April 1st, there shall be no licensed saloons in Lackawanna County. The decision came as a shock to the saloon men, although there were some indications of the impending below. I mean, you were in prohibition time, yeah. so it was expected. Yeah, that makes sense. It isn't known if the laws were changed because it was unconstitutional now, which was probably a massive driving force, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or if the actual, the actual law of the county was just modified. Um, mm. I couldn't find either way. Mm. And then it continues, or, and then the article continues to give the state of alcohol sales in Lackawanna County by saying, there's no denying that practically all the saloons in this county were simply a disguise behind which bootlegging transactions were carried on. Few, if any of them, endeavor to live within the law and only sell liquor of non-intoxicating kind. It has been possible ever since the enforcement law became operative to secure intoxicants hereabouts without very much trouble. Then it goes on to say that the licenses which they were operating on, the economic impact of them had been dropping. So they weren't bringing in as much as before prohibition went into effect. Hmm. The article also expresses concerns about the saloons being impacted. Should either the public prosecutor's office or the city authorities fall down on the new situation created by the action of the court, 
wink at or condone law violations, we will have instead of licensed saloons, a large number of speakeasies, hole-in-the-walls, blind pigs, and other such unwholesome and undesirable places. What's a blind pig? <laughs> no idea. I'm guessing it's another name for a speakeasy. Hole-in-the-wall. That is a, a complete nepotism. Yep. But what is... It's just a term for an illegal drinking place. <gasps> what? I love it. <laughs> there are so many phrases. There's that. There was like something with tigers. I think it says on the map of the speakeasies here. Let me... Yeah. A blind tiger was another way that they called them too. Okay. So blind tiger and blind pig? Yeah. Interesting. So all of them just mean illegal drinking locations. Mm. On January 19th of 1924, Mayor Durkin stated that saloons and other businesses well known for being potential places where alcohol were being served would be considered nuisance buildings. If they didn't stop selling alcohol within five days, they would receive a court summons and their businesses would be padlocked. It was believed that this action was taken because there had been a rise in the number of public drunkenness arrests in the cities that had brought criticism on the city and the police department. The mayor also complained of the refusal of grand juries to return indictments against men who had been charged by the city police with violating the liquor laws. And I think it's reasonable to assume um, that probably happened because that's probably where they were getting their alcohol from. (laughs) True. Yeah. Later in 1924, Governor Pinchot was reported as saying that local police departments had failed at closing speakeasies and stopping alcohol consumption in Scranton. He stated that it is obvious that if all police officers and federal enforcement services were to do their full duty in this state, bootleggers would vanish and Pennsylvania would be dry. Shade. Yeah. Major shade. Federal law enforcement was once again moving against bootleggers and speakeasies in Scranton during March of 1925. The Scranton Republican noted that government men working here for months under orders from Washington are said to have compiled a list of 350 names of brewers, bootleggers, saloon owners, and speakeasy profiteers in the end of the state against whom evidence had been secured. I have a question. Yes. <laughs> 300 in just Lackawanna County or the... St- I believe it was just in Scranton. Just in Scranton? 300? That's awesome. I mean... Yeah. Well, <laughs> interesting. It's, Very interesting. There's a lot. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Much of this information was compiled by a prohibition agent who had posed as a keg and barrel salesman. <laughs> it is thought that clergymen complain leading to this new push as the Westside Ministerial Association had previously lodged complaints about Mayor Durkin's handling of the liquor law violations. So they might have complained to the higher-ups. One of the reasons for their push was they believed that drinking would lead to more vices, such as gambling. Because Granton at this time also had an illegal slot machine problem. Really? Yes. (gasps) Um, So cool. I didn't really include it in here, but there was a major incident with the slot machines where like i think it was the mayor of german was uh-huh. arrested for like illegal gambling and all of these like a higher up level positions in the politics like in political society wow we're all arrested for illegal gambling and slot machines wow. and most of the time the slot machines were in speakeasies yeah so, so <laughs> yeah it was a whole mess mm-hmm. It all goes hand in hand. So the clergyman were right. 
to have their yeah. yeah okay fc baird of pittsburgh was a federal prohibition administrator put in charge of keeping pennsylvania dry on january 11th 1926 he stated that scranton would be dry he visited the city after flying across the state to help set up the office of the dry czar in wilkes-barre the dry czar yeah the dry czar like c-z-a-r that's what that's he they called him the dry czar yes okay so he worked out of Wilkes-Barre and enforced prohibition in the northeast section of the state. Bard wanted to focus the efforts on brewers rather than saloonmen and bartenders because he thought saloonmen and bartenders were small fries. Hmm. It was reported that he fully supported the padlocking method to keep establishments who sold alcohol closed. So padlocking, they just would go and they would padlock everything shut so no one could get in. Hmm. Even the people that were running it. Yeah, but I feel like you could still get in. It. I, I just keep thinking of um, Tommy from Peaky Blinders. He would get in. He would totally get in. Raids on speakeasies occurred the entire time Bard was in the Scranton area. The Scranton Republican stated that the liquor belt in this city is now in a state bordering on panic. Now that the tramp of raiding legions is echoing up every alley, nobody's saloon is safe. There's no knowing where the blow may fall next. Bartenders draw a beer with the sword of Damocles suspended over their heads and cash registers ring with a funeral knell. <laughs> Mr. Bard's young men are everywhere. The next few weeks, unless all signs fail, are going to be, so far as the humble beer seller is concerned, a combination of the San Francisco earthquake and the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. That's bleak. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Very much so. <laughs> wow. Okay. There's so much mourning. I know. <laughs> of like funeral illusions. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's, this is death, man. <laughs> yeah. The brewing and distilling of illegal alcohol continued throughout the city as it would throughout the entire time Prohibition Amendment was in fact. The illegal alcohol trade from Scranton expanded as the years passed, making it all the way to New York City for New Year's celebrations, according to the New York Times. Mm. The main impact that Prohibition had on many people's ability to get alcohol to sell was the cost. It had tripled in price by 1926. And despite this, it was still a very successful business. Mm. The money made by those who ran speakeasies often went to pay fines that they had accumulated from running the speakeasies. Mm, Yeah. For the entire year of 1926, Scranton collected over $100,000 worth of fines for alcohol-related offenses. As the Scranton Times put it, the gambler, body housekeeper, bootlegger, or speakeasy proprietor has no fear of a fine. He pays it and he goes back to his old business, marking up the fine as a risk of his business. Tom Shelby. That's who it was. It just came to me. I was listening to what you were yeah. saying, but also... Thinking. Thinking. Yeah. In picturing Tom Shelby. Yes. What would he do? People began to point out the timing of raids as being connected with election cycles. On October 27, 1928, just 10 days before the presidential election, the Scranton Times published an article titled Political Rating that stated, This is the open season for raids on speakeasies, gambling houses, etc. 
The work is already underway. The purpose of these raids is not to suppress the evils, force owners out of business, or punish violators. <laughs> these raids are always staged at election time and are directed invariably at those who might be suspected of lukewarmness or hostility to the candidates favored by those in power. Political friends are not molested unless it be to get a bigger campaign contribution. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And also it's... You can see how that's mm-hmm. very much an mm-hmm. easy... Like, the money was in the speakeasies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 In October of 1930, Gifford Pinchot was running to be re-elected as governor. He was a well-known supporter of Prohibition, but realized that he needed bootleggers and speakeasy proprietors to help him with his campaign. This hypocrisy was pointed out in the Scranton Times when they said, The situation as regards to the local end of the Pinchot campaign was made somewhat incongruous by the decision of the City Hall organization to get the booze purveyors into line the Milford Forester. The latter has been running up and down the state for months with bitter denunciation of the wet element. In fact, he has gone so far to apply the term bootlegger to prominent personages who are opposed to him. Now the real bootleggers are being asked to support him. Mm. And uh, he won the re-election that year. Shocker. Raids in the padlocking method would be used throughout the rest of Prohibition. Often arrests would be reported in groups where multiple names and cases would be listed. Officers would also knock beer and liquor off trucks and trains that came into Scranton. Savage. So anytime they found those, it was gone. (laughs) Man. This caused the price of beer to rise the longer Prohibition went on. Those who ran speakeasies also liked to have slot machines, as I mentioned before, Mm -hmm. in their establishments, Mm -hmm. which caused them even more grief and criticism (laughs) and places for police to target resulting in double charges. On December 5th of 1933, Prohibition ended. In an article in the Scranton Republican, it summed up the mood in Scranton by saying, This is the day when Prohibition repeal becomes effective, and it is remarkable to the region that unlike other sections of the country, no formal celebrations are announced. It is unlikely that any have been planned. The liquor laws of the state are rather stringent. Few licenses have been granted to date. Therefore, much uncertainty remains. Some of the men who possess beer licenses are not at all decided as to whether they will seek liquor licenses, and the prices that they will be charged for liquor are also in the air. There was hope, however, that everything would reasonably go back to how it was. On December 4th, which was the day before Prohibition ended, mm-hmm. the Scranton Times reported that the Brewers' Union was back to almost pre-Prohibition numbers. Mm. It did discuss potential issues, however, stating, There is plenty of liquor in stock to take care of the local demands tomorrow, but the greater portion is at places that have operated as speakeasies during the dry period of nearly 14 years. Many of these places will not be able to handle liquor legally as their establishments have not been bona fide restaurants or hotels for at least a five-year period. Mm. Supplies at leading hotels and restaurants will be limited as the leading manufacturers and distributors are refusing to ship orders until permits are obtained. It may be a week or 10 days before local hotel and restaurant dealers have stocked up. The article also mentioned that people would like to throw parties, but they would have to wait until the shipments of alcohol came in. At the end of the article, there was notices of job postings for state-run liquor stores that they included with salaries 
And the positions range from cashiers to clerks to truck drivers. Mm -hmm. It also stated that the goal was to have the liquor stores reopened by January 2nd of 1934. Wow. So that's the first part of Prohibition. That kind of laid out the entire groundwork. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? I just just love how uh, the articles are written. They're so morose and like, uh, I don't know. It's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah. It's neat, though. Mm-hmm. 300 just in Scranton. Or 300. Well, just in that time period, too. Yeah. Yeah, and the map that's here. I There's so many. I don't think... It, so, I mean, we, we have to tell um, our li- yes. the listeners. Um, so, in the vertical file, there is a copy of, of mm-hmm. a page from the Scranton Times from March 3rd of 1932, mm-hmm. where... It has the title of Why Should Anyone Be Thirsty? (laughs) And there are a bunch of dots where speakeasies were located. The large dots are where big freight cars containing a couple hundred half barrels of beer beer each fell into the hands of prohibition agents. Wow. So. So uh, tell them the streets. Oh, it's very much just the heart of downtown. Mm -hmm. So... Where the library is. Oh, wait, hold on. There's Vine right here. Yeah, Vine is here. The library really didn't have anything close to it in terms of... Yeah, no. Because we are right, like, the corner of Vine So where are these blocks, though? The buildings. Oh. Just as landmarks. Oh, I see. Okay. So City Hall is marked, the courthouse, the Times Building, Mm -hmm. Central... Yeah, the Times Building is... Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. There were so many by the mm-hmm. time. Yeah, there was. Like right next to the door. That's like the hub. Yeah. So it covers the area from the Lackawanna River up to Madison Ave. And then it goes down to Olive Street from Lackawanna Ave. Oh. So I will post this in the images yes, that go up definitely. with and I enjoy how the um, compass. I is love that. I just the, noticed it. It's a, a wine cork in the like wine corkscrew. See, I see it as a bottle. Oh, it is a bottle. The, okay, so a bottle and then a corkscrew. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Wow. So this is the end of this episode. So if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, or anything at all, please feel free to email me at aloney at albright.org. That is A-L-O-N-E-Y at albright.org. Or feel free to call the library at 570-348-3000. Thank you. Mm-hmm.